Well, as I said, this is, this is part three of our Captivated series, and if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we're looking each week at four of the Apostle Paul's New Testament letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, one of those each week, one passage from each of those books, and looking particularly at what it was about Jesus that captivated the Apostle Paul so much. The Apostle Paul, as you know, went from being a hostile opponent of Christianity to one of Christianity's most well-known champions. His life was radically altered. And so the question that we're asking each week in this series is this, what was it about Jesus that captivated Paul so much? And then what, how can we be captivated by Jesus in much the same way? Paul's life was radically altered, and so can we, can we get a glimpse of that? Are there things that we can apply to our own lives? And so in the past two weeks, we've looked at how Paul was captivated by, first of all, the gospel of Jesus from the book of Galatians. And then last week, Tim preached... Um, Captivated by the love of Jesus from the book of Ephesians. So this morning we'll be in Paul's letter to the Philippians starting in chapter 3. And hopefully, as, as Tim mentioned last week, hopefully many of you have been utilizing uh, this reading plan that we've put together um, in conjunction with this series. Hope you're using that and enjoying that. Now, most of us have applied for a new job at some point in our lives. Maybe it was for you, you still have the job that you had fresh out of college, but you've applied for a job. Maybe you've, um, you're looking for a new career path or you've been out of work for a while. High school students, maybe you've applied for, maybe you applied for your first job this summer at some point. You turned 16, got a car, mom and dad said, it's time for you to work this summer. But very often, part of that process includes preparing and submitting a resume, Resumes are intended to give a brief overview of your education and employment history. And since it's usually the introduction to a prospective employer, it's very important that resumes be accurate and compelling. In which case, you probably want to avoid the following blunders that have been found on actual resumes. So I'm going to list some of these. I got eight or nine of them. First of all, check this out. Under hobbies, this person wrote, enjoy cooking Chinese and Italians. <laughs> Italian... It's fine, but you add an S on there, that's criminal. Skills, under, under skills, this person wrote, strong work ethic, attention to detail, team player, self-motivated, attention to detail. But then right under that, they wrote proofreading. That's awesome. The next one, under experience, this person wrote, stalking, shipping, and receiving. Going to hire that guy on the spot. Under achievements, and nominated for prom queen. That's great for her, but maybe not resume-worthy. Underachievements, um, consistently tanked as top sales producer for new accounts. Probably meant ranked. This is similar, underachievements, received plague for top salesperson of the year. What a, what a reward that is, probably meant a plaque. Under skills, am a perfectionist and rarely, if, if ever, forget details. That's like the first one. Under objective, I am fully aware of the king of attention this position requires. The king of attention. Probably meant kind. And then finally, I think this is the last one, bilingual in three languages. That's my favorite. <laughs> Got to look over those resumes. But then in addition, in addition to mistakes, there's also today the issue of padding resumes, stretching the truth or just outright lying. According to Forbes magazine, the top misrepresentations on resumes include lying about getting a degree, Exaggerating your numbers, such as sales numbers, increasing your previous salary numbers, lying about employment dates, certainly to fill in perhaps those unemployment gaps, um, inflating titles, you know, why be a director when you could be a vice president, 
and lying about abilities or GPAs. Because after all, a lot of us maybe think they're not going to check that stuff anyway, right? So some of the most famous padded resumes of recent years, just have three of these, include Scott Thompson. You probably haven't heard of Scott Thompson, but Scott Thompson was CEO of Yahoo for only about five months in 2012. He apparently lied on his resume about his education, about a degree he got, stating that he had earned two degrees, one in accounting, which is true, and one in computer science, not true. Well, why would he do that? Probably because simply a degree in accounting won't get you a job as CEO at Yahoo. Secondly, Robert Irvine of Dinner Impossible on the Food Network said on his resume that he had created Princess Diana's wedding cake, that he had prepared dinners at the White House, he was a White House chef, and that he had been knighted in England. Apparently, none of those things were true, and once that was found out, in fact, there were only minor repercussions. He was, I think, maybe punished or taken off the air for a, a season, but he remained on the Food Network. And then, perhaps one of the most famous padded resumes, um, this was news to me, but as I researched this, one of the most famous ones is perhaps Joe Biden, our current vice president. When he was, when he was a presidential candidate in 1988, quite a while ago, I didn't know he ever ran for president, he stated that he had graduated in the top half of his class, that he had attended law school on a full scholarship, and that he had received three degrees in college. Again, all three of those were apparently either untrue or major exaggerations of his actual record. So he withdrew from the presidential race soon after, citing that his candidacy had been overrun by the exaggerated shadow, he said, of his past mistakes. Now, of course, none of us are perfect, and I'm not here to pick on Joe Biden or any of these guys this morning. But what does your resume look like? Does it make you look pretty good? A resume is designed, like I said, to put your best foot forward. This is why I think I'm the best candidate, right? This is why I am the best person for the job. This is why you should hire me for this job over anybody else. And so it's appropriate on resumes not to lie or to stretch the truth, but to make yourself look good, right? That's the point. You want the job. You're seeking to get the job. But herein lies the challenge for us this morning, that this is exactly how many of us approach God. In fact, it's, it's how many religions approach God. This is what it's all about, they say. When it comes to knowing God, here's my resume, God. Look at the list of good things that I've done. God, it's a pretty stellar resume. Look at all my, of my accomplishments. God, don't pay any attention to the bad things I've done, to the things I struggle with. Those aren't on my resume anyway. You don't need to pay attention to that, but God, you'll accept me, right? Because again, I've been pretty good. I've been pretty good. Look at some of the things on my resume. I've served. Look at my church attendance. Look, I've been baptized. I've stopped using certain four-letter words, at least pretty often. But see, what happens is by default, and we're all guilty of this, I am too, we by default many times fall into this karma mentality, you know what karma is? It's just, it's just the way a lot of us operate, that the good needs to outweigh the bad, and what goes around comes around, right? So my, if my good deeds are outweighing my bad deeds, I'm pretty good on that scale system. But if the opposite is true, I'm in trouble. In fact, so many of us, I think, we think that when bad things happen, somebody gets sick in our lives or our, our families or we get sick, even simple, simple things like a flat tire, you start to go, God's punishing me. He really is because I did that or I thought that or I said that a month or two months or six months ago. It's really how we operate. But this is not at all how the Apostle Paul became captivated by Jesus Christ. 
See, in chapter three of his letter to the Philippians, Paul basically says that there's two ways to approach God. Now, we're gonna get to the text in just a minute. But he basically says this, that the first way, the wrong way, is this way that I've just stated, the having a good resume or good record approach. That to know God, to be right with God, it's sort of like working out a deal or a contract with God. And how many times have you even said, God, I'll make a deal with you? But we go to God like a taxpayer paying taxes to the government. We say, look, I've paid my taxes. Well, now, now you need to do your part. I want to see clean roads, uh, clean city, good roads. I want to see systems in place for the, for the poor. I want you to do your part, but I've paid my taxes. I've paid my dues. See, the problem with this is too often um, it leaves us in control. We can still have control. We can put God in a box and we can basically say, God, you have to do my bidding now because I've been pretty good for you. I can still have it my way. That's how all kinds of things work in our worldly kingdoms. But it's not at all how the kingdom of God works. See, the second way, the correct way to approach God is this. You're captivated by him. You're satisfied by him. You're enthralled by him. It's a love relationship with the God of the universe you begin to see that you come to God not based on what you do for God, but completely and totally based on what he has done for you. It's the good news of salvation by grace. That's what grace is. Do you know what it brings? It brings this. It brings a surpassing satisfaction, an unbelievable joy, the satisfaction of knowing Christ and of being known by him. Do you want to know what captivated Paul? He was satisfied by Christ, by Jesus. And so there are three things that Paul shows us here in this passage this morning, three things that we must understand if we're to be captivated by Christ in the same way that he was. And so my three headings for this morning are simply this, what's the enemy of surpassing satisfaction, the answer to it, and then how to apply it. All right, we're gonna look at these three. So first of all, the enemy of surpassing satisfaction. So um, I'm gonna read to you from Philippians chapter three. If you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and pull it out. I'd love for you to follow along in your own Bibles. This will be on the screens as well, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 6. So Paul writes this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So what's the enemy of a surpassing satisfaction in Jesus? That's our question. That's what we're looking for to start with. So let's start by looking at verse 2. Paul writes here, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now the Greek word that's used here, that's translated watch out or look out or beware, is the Greek word blepo. But in the Greek, here's what's interesting to me, you don't probably care about the Greek too much. Um, he actually uses this word three times in this verse. So the more literal translation here, the NIV puts it this way, I think for readability, but that he actually says, watch out for those dogs, watch out for those evildoers, watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. Beware. Have you ever seen a beware of dog sign? 
I was a paper boy growing up for probably seven years of my life. I switched to new routes twice. Dogs hate paper boys, much like they hate mailmen. And um, if you see a beware of dog sign, what's even more terrifying, if you hear the dog, you maybe know it's behind a fence or something. But to see, just to see the sign, nobody puts up a beware of dog sign for a poodle, for a little princess or something. You don't need to be, a, a, you don't need to be scared of that dog. But so I'd go in the mornings, and if I saw a sign on a new route, man, I'd be terrified. Like, there was a vicious dog around here somewhere, and I don't know where it is. Paul says, beware three times. Watch out. Look out for those dogs, those evildoers. So who is Paul talking about here? Who's he talking about? Paul's talking about a group of, of Jews. They were, they were converts. I'll get into that. But a group of Jews that seemed to follow him around really for much of his ministry. Perhaps at this point, they have not showed up in Philippi yet. But Paul's telling the Christians of Philippi to be aware of these guys, be on the lookout for them. But these guys would follow Paul around quite a lot, stirring up controversy. And the commentators today, at least in more recent years, have given these guys a name. They were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers. In fact, they were to a degree followers of Jesus. They had been converts from Judaism. They believed in Jesus. And yet I would say they really weren't Christians. Why not? Because they kept trying to make Christians like Jews. They were Judaizing the gospel, which is where the term, I suppose, comes from. So they were making the gospel Jewish, meaning primarily that they insisted that Christians still had to obey all of the Old Testament, Old Testament ceremonial laws, not just the moral laws, but the ceremonial laws. And so if you were here two weeks ago when Pastor Jeff kicked off this series, he brought these guys up, at least a little, as he talked about the Galatians. Paul confronted these guys in a big way in the book of Galatians. Now, dogs, of course, was not only a general term of disrespect and ridicule in the ancient world, it was typically a term that certain Jews would use in reference to certain Gentiles who were ritually unclean. But Paul here has the audacity to turn this around on these guys, on these Judaizers, and says, no, 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 it is you, Judaizers, who are the dogs, not the Gentiles. He calls them out. He says they're evildoers. They were probably trying to to be good, maybe to, they were just stuck maybe in this, like, are we Jewish or this new Christianity things come about? Paul calls them evildoers because they were adding to the simple, simple message of the gospel. Now, in particular, the Judaizers made a huge deal about circumcision. We start to see that here. Now, I know if I talk about circumcision for too long, some of you might start to squirm or just simply be weirded out. Like, why do we need to capitalize on this, this topic? If you're under 15 years of age, you maybe just giggle at the mere mention of the word. I did when I was younger. I get that. But here's why I think this is worth explaining a bit this morning. Not only does it come up in this passage in Philippians, but here's the thing, and many of you know this, this topic comes up a lot in the Bible. It really does, because this was part of the ceremonial, Jewish ceremonial laws. And so here's the thing, I just, we want you to be reading your Bibles regularly on your own, having a personal habit of doing that. Many, many of you do that regularly. Others of you maybe don't but would like to. And so when you come across in the Old or in the New Testament, this, all this talk about circumcision, you have some understanding, especially in the New Testament, of what it means. I don't know why that was the covenant symbol that God gave to Abraham, but um, it was. So for the Jews, circumcision was, and I suppose still is, a very big deal according to these ceremonial laws. So by contrast, Paul is trying to say here, he's trying to say here's the simple equation of Christianity. I think Jeff maybe mentioned this two weeks ago as well, that the simple equation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's Jesus plus nothing. And these guys were saying, no, 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 no. No, it's Jesus plus something. 
In fact, it's Jesus plus you better be circumcised. That's what equals everything. And you need to obey all, everything else. But you have to be circumcised if you want to know the living God. And so Paul says, in reference to circumcision, that's what this phrase means. He says, you are mutilators of the flesh. The New American Standard Version, which is perhaps a more literal translation, just simply translates this phrase, the false circumcision. But here's what Paul's doing. Again, if in the Greek, Paul's using a play on words. See, the word for circumcision is the word peritome. It's the word that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 3 when he says, it is we who are the circumcision, peritome. But he says, you Judaizers, you are actually katatome, which means to, just to cut up, to mutilate. See, Jews would refer to themselves as the circumcision. That was the title they had. We are the circumcision. And Paul says, no, no, you are katatome. We are the true circumcision, peritome. See, a true Christian doesn't need additional works to be made right with God. Look at verse 3. We are the true circumcision. It is we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, you don't need to add other things. It's Jesus plus nothing. And if you boast, we boast only in Christ because he is the only thing that counts when it comes to knowing Jesus. So what's the enemy of a surpassing satisfaction? Have you figured it out yet? Is it circumcision? Not quite. It's maybe bigger than that. I suppose that's an enemy satisfaction to a little newborn baby boy. Paul is confronting, what is he doing here? He's confronting the resume system. He's confronting this who's got the best resume approach. Again, it's how all kinds of things work in our world. It's not just how you get a job or how you get into college. You guys, we apply the resume system to our relationships, maybe to a dating relationship, to friendships. You meet somebody new, you immediately start sizing them up, right? You high school graduates, in a few weeks here, you will step foot on your college campus if you're going to college for the very first time. And what will you do? You will immediately start applying this resume system to everyone you meet, and they will apply it to you. How good looking are you? What's your body figure like? How smart are you? That's going to be a big one in college. How smart are you? What kind of family background do you come from? All kinds of things. Maybe not trying to judge, but we'll compare. It's virtually how everything works in our world, but it's not how God works. It's not God's system. But Paul decides to do this. Paul says, you want to go there? Let's go there. You, you want to brag about some things? You want to use the resume system? Judy, I'll give you a killer resume. Now again, to, just to be clear, Paul knows that a stellar resume means nothing to God. He knows that. And yet he says, is that what you're looking for, you Christians in Philippi? Do you want some, you want some credentials behind me? Okay, let's go there. You want to go there? My, tr my resume will trump all of y'all's. And so, again, second paragraph here, second half of verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now let me, let me stop there. Paul says, circumcised on the eighth day. What's he saying? He's saying, I was not a convert to Judaism. He said, I'm a Jew from birth. I've been a Jew from the beginning. When he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, he's saying, I am from one of the two tribes of Israel that was true to the house of David, the southern kingdom. He's, saying, he's talking about his racial purity. He's racially pure. This was extremely important in his time and place. He says that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. See, at this time, many Jews were Hebrew on the surface, but underneath, they were Greek. They had become Hellenized Jews. They were Greek-speaking people. They, be they had become Greek in their culture. But Paul says 
that he'd been raised up a Hebrew. Hebrew was his mother tongue. He spoke Aramaic. He wasn't Hellenized like these other Jews. He goes on to say, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, I'm faultless. He says, look, I'm culturally pure. I'm racially pure. He says, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. You've all heard of the Pharisees. But Paul says, I was a part of this strict religious sect. The other thing that meant to these Christians was he was a highly educated man. He had all these uh, educational attainments. He was a leader. He was an activist in his movement. Again, he went around um, giving approval to the death of Christians. These Christians are going around leading Jews astray, at least he thought at the time until he encountered the risen Savior. And finally, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, he's faultless. All of the rules that the Pharisees had, he kept to them. So you put all of this together, Paul had these great credentials. Paul had a killer resume. He says, you want to go with the resume system? I've got you beat. You want to play this religious game? You want to play the comparison game? He goes, I win. But then verse 7, right? Verse 7, he sort of drops a bomb. He goes, who cares? Verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I now consider loss. So what's the enemy of a surpassing satisfaction? Here it is. You ready for it? Just simply what the text says, having confidence in the flesh. Having confidence in the flesh. Not based off what God gives to you, but simply uh, it's your resume system. It's padding your resume. That's the enemy of true and lasting satisfaction. Again, it's how all kinds of things work in our world. Therefore, it becomes our default mode. We go to God with a contract. We go to God and say, God, look at all of my accomplishments. And yet Paul says, our earthly resumes mean nothing to God. They are garbage. And yet tragically, when we put too much confidence in our own resumes, we become self-righteous and it destroys our satisfaction. Let me just ask you this. Do you never feel satisfied in your life? Are you always seeking maybe the next big thing, the next promotion, the next upgrade, the next big event? You just got done with vacation, but you go, man, I just need another vacation. I'm so tired. But you're always striving for more. In fact, a lot of times that's why we're not satisfied. The other reason we're not satisfied is expectations, right? We put expectations on ourselves. We apply the resume system to ourselves. We don't live up to our own expectations. Or perhaps more so, we have expectations for others. We have expectations for our kids and for our spouse and for our friends. We want people to say things to us when they don't. We want our spouses to do things that they don't. We have all these unmet expectations. But those are never going to satisfy you. Even if they're met, there will be more expectations. It's the resume system. And it was never meant to satisfy us. Leads to the second point. What's the answer to surpassing satisfaction? So where do we find it? Look, I'm going to read the rest of this. Verses 7 through 11. Paul writes, but whatever were gains to me now, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says now that he's a Christian, he says the most, the thing he is most captivated by is the surpassing worth 
of knowing Jesus, this surpassing greatness, this satisfaction, it's overwhelming to him that he considers everything else a loss. It's like saying my two degrees from Harvard, my, my awards, my, my reputation, I don't care. It's all garbage. I don't care. Paul says, you will not find it in striving and striving for more and more and more. It is not found at what you've accomplished or at who you are. Last week, I met um, two dogs, I guess you could say two Brookside dogs for the very first time. Young couples, both of these couples help out in our student ministry in some way. Um, I've got pictures of a Maddie Chase is a Yorkie. It's on, she's on the left. And uh, Nutmeg which is Nathan and Claire Brown's new dog, a Shih Tzu. Maddie chases Sydney and Eli Chase's dog. Um, Sydney has had Maddie since she was about nine years old. She begged her parents for that dog, and so Maddie's getting a little older. Um, adorable, adorable little dogs. We don't have a dog yet, maybe someday. But some of you in here, some of you are big dog people. You love big dogs, you have big dogs. And let's say you have a big dog and you're taking that big dog for a walk. But of course, with a very, very large dog, as always happens, the dog more than likely takes you for a walk. And it's maybe not that fun for you, but imagine this. Imagine this dog sees some food at once. And man, it wants that food. It wants this, maybe there's a hot dog on the side of the road or something. It's going for it. But you're trying to train the dog, so it's wearing one of those choke collars. So it's on a leash, but the more the dog strives after that food, that meat, the more that collar digs into its skin. It's hurting him, but he doesn't care, right? He wants that meat. He wants it so bad. You know what it's like to walk a dog. It just is pulling and straining, and so he pushes through the pain. He wants the food so much, right, that he, what, he counts the pain as loss. He ignores it. He forgets about it. He has one desire and one desire alone, and it's for that food. And he doesn't care what else happens to him, right? Everything else becomes secondary, the surpassing greatness of that food. And Paul says, my greatest desire is the desire to know Jesus. Everything else is secondary. I don't care anymore. I push everything else aside. The surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Savior. And so what does he say is the answer to satisfaction? What is the answer to surpassing satisfaction? How does he get it? He says he considers everything else a loss. He loses all things, his accomplishments, his awards, his, his Hebrew heritage, his ethnic pride. He says, I don't care about this stuff. I'll throw it all away. I simply want Christ. And so what's the answer? The answer is this. You have to lose yourself. You have, to, you have to let go of your resume. You don't lose who you are, your personality, but you throw away your resume. Numerous times in the Gospels, Jesus says over and over, for example, Mark 8, 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospel will, will save it. But verse 9 too, Paul says, and I'm found in him. You lose yourself, and you guess what? You're found in him. Christ will give you a brand new identity, a whole new set of loves. So I'd say to you, if you've never experienced this satisfaction, reconsider. Let me put it like this. To, to be a Christian is not simply to believe in a set of propositions. It's not simply to believe the facts. Yes, perhaps that's a starting point. It is that, but it's so much more than that. It is to say, I consider everything else a loss in comparison with this number one goal and satisfaction to know Christ. Do you really want that satisfaction? That's what I'm asking you this morning. Do you want it if you understand the power of Christ? Christianity is not just a set of propositions for you. It's to experience him. It's to be satisfied in him. You say, what kind of person does this look like, Brad? 
Like, what are you, what are you saying? Are, are, are you talking about being sort of a, a fanatic? Sort of one of those people you go, I know people like that, Brad. I have an aunt like that. I have an uncle like that. I have a grandpa like that. All they ever do is talk about God or their church or the Bible or Jesus. I hate, I, we're, my whole family, we're sick of it every time we're with that person. Is that what it's like? And I would say, no, that's, that's actually not what it's like at all. That is not the kind of person that Jesus is talking, or that Paul's talking about here when he says to be captivated by Christ. In fact, I would say a person more like that, or a person who's like that, always being obnoxious to everyone, always sort of beating them over the heads with Jesus or, or Bible verses, they're actually more like the guys I mentioned at the beginning, the Judaizers or the Pharisees. They don't have a surpassing satisfaction in Christ. So what does this sort of person look like? What do they do? It leads to the last point. How do we apply this? A person who finds satisfaction in Christ, I'm going to put it like this, it's much like a person who wears glasses. I don't know how many of you wear glasses. I have glasses. I don't wear them often. I'm a contacts kind of guy. I hate having things just on my face. But let me explain this. When I wear my glasses, I don't spend all of my time seeing my glasses, but I spend all of my time seeing everything through my glasses, right? That's how they work. And so if my glasses get... um, get too, like, sort of, if they slide down or if they get too dirty, it affects my perception in every way. But get this, a person who finds satisfaction in Christ isn't necessarily always talking about Christ, but they are looking at everything through Christ. So let me give you some examples. Let's take, um, let's take worry. How would a person deal with worry? There are so many of us, perhaps, that are religious. We go to church every week. But if we're honest, we worry about everything. We worry about our kids, we worry about, our, I don't know, our spouses. We worry about all kinds of stuff. And when we deal with worry, how do we deal with it? We vent it to our inner, inner circle. We talk to all kinds of people. Christ maybe is third or fourth option. Maybe isn't an option at all. But a person who's captivated by, captivated by Christ, how do they deal with worry? They go to Jesus. You think about what he's taught you. You think about what he's done for you. You think about what Jesus says about your future and how it's secured. And you don't have to worry He's your first option. How, do you, how would a person like this deal with bitterness? Well, you'd start by going to Jesus. And you'd say, God, you're the judge. I'm not the judge. You're the judge. I can let go of this. Why is this eating me up so bad? God, someday you will make this right. I can let go of it because you're in control, God. You go to Jesus. How do you deal with fear? You go to Jesus. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil. Why not? Because you are with me, God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How do you decide how much money to spend in a year and on what things? You go, whoa, 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 you that's not in the Bible. You don't go to Jesus for that. No, you do. It's not directly in there, no, but you look at his teachings. You look at, you look at them through his values. What does the Bible say about how you spend your money? How do you decide what lifestyle to live? How do you decide what, what relationships should look like, what relationships to prioritize? You go to Jesus. If you're satisfied in Christ, Christ is like the glasses. You're not always seeing Christ or talking about Christ, but you are seeing everything through Christ. That Jesus becomes the lens of your entire worldview. He's how you look at everything. So you're not always talking about him. You're not always Jesus juking everything other people say. But you see everything through the lens of Jesus. So what do we do with this? I hope that is a start. Maybe that is not a, a tangible enough way or not a, you know, a tangible enough application, but I think that needs to be the first step. Oh, how I hope that you will be captivated by Jesus, that you'll run to him, that you'll find him, 
In your prayer life even, go for experience. Don't just go for the facts or to learn more. To learn more. Go for experience. Say, God, I want to experience you. I know you have more to give me. God, I know you can satisfy. I've seen that in Paul and in countless other people in the Bible and in countless other people I've met. And finally, if this is brand new for you, you say, Brad, where do I start? I would suggest simply this, that you start by seeing that Jesus was first captivated by you. He was first captivated by you way before you were ever captivated by him. He was captivated by you even before the you came to church today or are listening online. Even before you made one stride toward him, he was captivated by you. Romans 5.10, well, you were still his enemy. He loved you. He came to you. He died for you. He took your place. He's not just your example or your model. He's your savior. So you can run to him. He wants you and he wants you to know him. Oh, let's be captivated by him. So let's pray. Father, we all want satisfaction. God, I might even say it's the God of our world. God, it's what we all are looking for. We're looking for it everywhere. We want to be satisfied, God. So God, remind us today that that, it starts with you, God. The, The enemy is a lot of times our own resumes. It's sometimes our sin, but God, a lot of times it's our own righteousness. And we start to think you owe us. God, satisfy us. God, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And Lord, remind us this morning that you are not just an example for us. You are not just our model. You're our savior, God. You took our place. You are our substitute. You took our death penalty for us so that we have nothing to fear. And we get all of the satisfaction. So God, may we throw aside our resumes and may we run to you and God, may we begin to see all of life through the lens of Jesus Christ. God, make us that kind of person. Make us the kind of person that is satisfied in you, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.